Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. Roger talking. It's 12.08. How you doing? Bradley J with you, your host. And uh, Rob Brooks is in master control, working the wheel. Uh, just a little report. For some reason, I feel very good. I feel better than I felt in like a year and a half. I'm not sure why. I have to take stock of what, what happened today and repeat that. Part of the reason I feel good is... Anytime Bob Allison is on, I know we're going to have a good night. So that's part of it. Thanks for coming in, Bob. Thanks, Bradley. Glad to hear you're feeling better today. Yeah. I don't know. I've just been off for like a year and a half. Yeah. And today, I had some sort of breakthrough. That's good. Very good. So today, we're going to talk about, tonight, we're going to talk about mass innovators, Massachusetts yes. innovators. Yes. Sort of recent and sort of historical. Yeah. It's been an incredible story that I don't think we appreciate enough. If you ever are at Logan Airport, uh, Terminal E, the Massport, has put up a great display of about 50 important innovations in Massachusetts. It's actually the work of a guy named Bob Krim, who teaches at Framingham State, and he is an historian of innovation. And so he said first they wanted 50, and he thought, gee, that's going to be tough to come up with that many, but then realized it was hard to limit it to that many. Is that in the redone JetBlue terminal? I, f- I no, feel it's like a, it's toward... It's between Terminal C and E. Okay. There's like uh, an area there that's kind of ambiguous, but it's really very well done. And in fact, there's a guide to uh, pointing you to it called like the Innovation Corridor or something. And uh, so it's really good to think about what's happened in Massachusetts and why we've had this culture of innovation really since the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. You know, we have some really remarkable people who, you know, that both Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell were working in Boston at about the same time on different things. Edison got his first patent here, for actually for a vote-counting machine. And he was working on Court Street in an area that's now part of um, Government Center. The building's been demolished. And Alexander Graham Bell, of course, had come here to teach the deaf. He was working at a school for the deaf, and he's worked trying to develop a machine to help the deaf communicate. And his, his, he marries a woman who is deaf, uh, Mabel. And, in fact, we remember Ma Bell, the Bell Telephone Company, and Ma Bell was Mabel. I didn't know that. No, that's a, You can see this at the Parker House. Uh, that a one letter from bit Ali- of information is totally worth the price of admission that's, right there. That's worth the whole show now. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but yeah, Bell is developing this uh, method for communicating, and it becomes, of course, the telephone. He goes off to the exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. We have a centennial exposition to show off American innovations. And it happened that, we'll get back to innovations in a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about Dom Pedro, the emperor of Brazil, who happened to be visiting America at the time. And he meets Bell because he's really interested in teaching the deaf. He meets Bell in Boston. Then Dom Pedro goes down to Philadelphia and he's being shown through the exposition. And Bell is there in the inventor's hall with his machine and the delegation looking at these different exhibits decides, okay, we've spent enough time here, let's leave. And Don Pedro sees, oh, well, this is Mr. Bell that I met in Boston. Mr. Bell, can, and he, no one can leave since the emperor now wants to talk to this guy. They were ready to cut out and go do something else. And he sees Bell and asks him what his invention is, and he explains how the telephone works. And, of course, this is the big invention of 1876. And Brazil becomes the first country outside the United States to develop the telephone. And I think that this is one of our great stories here of Alexander Graham Bell inventing the telephone here, but he's actually working on something different when he comes up with this idea. Do you think this area has more inventions or inventors or innovators per capita? I'll throw that out there and see if anyone wants to argue with it, yeah. And I think it, part of it is um, we're not afraid to take risks and we're not afraid to fail at things. And we're always trying, we're, there's a great deal of competition here. So we're trying to improve things. I mean, you see this in just about every story of innovation that people are trying to improve on something. And, but they're also talking to each other and communicating with each other and sharing ideas. So you have those two kind of contradictory things here. Another of my favorite stories involves um, a guy named Percy Spencer, who was a third grade, he, he had a third grade education. His father was a mill worker up in Maine, and Percy is homeless for a while after the First World War, and he gets a job at Raytheon, which is a company that does tubes and other things. And during the Second World War, a delegation from England comes here because they had developed radar. And radar relies on this uh, magnetic coil, an elect- uh, a copper coil. And they would hand carve these things out of blocks of copper, really a laborious thing. And this is during the German blitz of England. British factories are being demolished. They cannot keep manufacturing these things there. It takes a long time. And they want to find someone who can make more of these. And so Percy, Percy Spencer is one of the guys called in for Raytheon with his meeting with the British brass. Top secret thing. They don't want this to get out of you know this little circle for fear the Germans or someone else might get their hands on it. And Percy Spencer looks at this thing and says, okay, I'll take it home over the weekend and see if I can figure something out. And, of course, the British brass are aghast at this. I mean, who is this guy who just shows up and is going to take it home? But he does. He takes it home, he studies it, and he has a mind that is able to see how you solve this problem. And on Monday, he comes back and reports, yeah, we can manufacture these like and through X, Y, and Z, which they do. And that's what wins the war. Now, Spencer also, he used to carry a chocolate bar in his pocket. And he noticed that when he was by this electromagnet, the chocolate bar would melt. Well, what makes that happen? It's that question, that asking, why does this happen? that leads to these innovations. And they realize that this is sending out rays that will essentially cook something from the inside. And after the war, Raytheon begins manufacturing what they call a radar range. That is, it's based on radar. 
And the first one they really show publicly is at Norumbega Park, which is out uh, a big park along the Charles River. And they have this thing basically the size of a big refrigerator that will make popcorn. People come to watch how fast the popcorn pops in this thing. And uh, Raytheon winds up acquiring Amano, which is a maker of home appliances, and turns this into the microwave. That's what I was going to say. Uh, I, I think I remember people giving, uh, getting Amano radar ranges on, yes. on talk shows. I remember that, the Amano radar range, yeah. And radar is the nucleus for this, the genesis of this. So I don't know if this may be beyond the scope. You're you know, a historian, not a scientist. But if it melts the, the chocolate bar, if the radiation melts the chocolate bar in the, in the man's pocket, how come it doesn't harm us? That's a good question. Well, it does harm us if we hang around it too long, which is why if you're ever having x-ray, you, know, you don't want to be too exposed to it. That's one of the things that has to be worked out. How do you keep it so that it is just working on popping the popcorn and not on popping your internal organs? I guess it's a Faraday cage, but yes. I don't really understand that. Do you, do you have any understanding? I don't, I don't have any. I, the, I apologize. Inside every microwave is some, some structure yeah. called a Faraday cage, mm -hmm. I guess invented by a man named Faraday. Well, probably Michael Faraday, who was Michael one of the pioneer, pioneers in science in the okay. uh, 18th century. I'm still a little nervous. Um, you know, when I, yeah. you stand right next to the microwave when it's going? Yeah. You do? No, I don't. Because I feel like it will cook my liver. It could. It could very well. Maybe you've been standing away from the microwave, and that's why you're feeling better. Now, maybe. Back to Bell. He grew up in Massachusetts? No, no. He grew up in Canada. Oh, okay. He was from Nova Scotia. Now, there's an urban legend that one of the things that attracted Bell to Boston was um, we were a very accepting community, and there was no Ku Klux Klan here. I don't know if that is true, but he was from Canada. And which is one reason Canada does lay some claim to the invention of the telephone, because he might have worked on it when he was up in Canada at home. But it really was invented here. So he's not from Boston. And I don't think he continue. He does continue living in Boston for a while. So the Bell Telephone Company, which is named for Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, another thing he is able to do is create a company. And in the late 19th century, most of the, much of the Supreme Court's time is taken up with defending the Bell patent against others. Because, you know, here you have an idea that once someone makes it, you realize how simple it is. I mean, you and I probably could not make one of these things if someone gave us the equipment, but someone who has a mind to it could. And then people are perfecting it and then arguing about, well, I actually did this or I actually did this piece. You know, patent law, making patents is a very complicated thing. And Bell is able to defend the patent from all comers. And you know, so the Bell Telephone Company remains pretty much intact into the 1970s when it's broken up. Anything you're working on with Rev 250? Yes. Right now there are two bills before the legislature to create a statewide commission to commemorate the 250th. Uh, there's one in the House, one in the Senate. Today we had a meeting with a group of civic leaders to talk about what they can do to support this. So. We're also looking ahead to do a teacher workshop this summer on underrepresented voices in the American Revolution, uh, Native Americans, African Americans, women, loyalists, telling these stories. Now, there's been a lot of scholarship, so people in the academy have been researching the roles of underrepresented folks, but how do we get this into K-12 through classrooms? So that's really what we're looking at right now, both getting state support through the commission as well as business support and 
Looking forward next year is, of course, the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, and the Bostonian Society has all kinds of events planned to commemorate that, but we're really looking to, to how we can use this moment for education. So that's what's happening with Rev 250. This isn't about a Rev 250, but do you think, I don't think, the, the play they put on for a while... Blood on blood, the snow. Blood yeah. on the snow. Is that coming back? Oh, that definitely. That is coming back. They plan to have more showings of that next year because they realized what a good play it was and what a good use of the space it was. Can you explain to folks what it is? Because yeah, it's is, just this takes magnificent. Place, it is. This takes place the day after the massacre. You know, the massacre is the event we know about. The reason we know about it is Bostonians made a huge propaganda case about it. And the next day, Governor Hutchinson is meeting in the governor with the governor's council in the council chamber and a delegation comes from the Boston town meeting demanding that the troops be removed. And it's really this political moment when the governor has to decide what he is going to do here. And the town wants the troops removed. The council is trying to decide if they'll support the governor or support the town. It's really this critical moment which is going to lead to the revolution. You, know, you may wonder, how do we get from five guys being shot on March the 5th of 1770 to a revolution, and it really is this political story. And you're sitting in the council chamber where all of this happened. This really took place in the spot where yeah, the that play very is spot. really that is, taking place. That's the room where it happened, yeah. And they, if you look out the window, you can see Faneuil Hall where the town meeting was happening. And the town meeting is the official government of the town of Boston. So this is a dispute between the town government, the provincial government, and within the provincial government, you have the governor who's appointed by the crown, the council that's chosen by the assembly. So they do, in a sense, represent the people of Massachusetts, and they're trying to navigate this crisis and figure out how they should respond to this. So it's really a pivotal moment in the history of the country. And, of course, that chambers, those chambers look out onto the where the massacre took that's place, that's like right. 50 Bal feet from that window. Yeah, the balcony. Governor Hutchinson had gone out onto the balcony and called to the crowd, telling them to go home. He said, uh, I will live and die by the law. That is, he spent the rest of the night in the council chamber hearing witnesses as to what had happened. And early the next morning, he orders the arrest of uh, Captain Preston and seven or eight soldiers. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Is that, by the way, the original? Do you happen to know if that's the original balcony? If I look at that balcony, was it the same balcony or has it been replaced? I'm pretty sure it is the same balcony. So yeah. that's also the balcony where the, the Boston version of the, the De Declaration, Declaration of, of Independence was on, read. On July 18th, yes. yeah. Thomas Crafts came out onto the balcony and read the Declaration. The State Archives actually has the um, bill that the state worker uh, submitted because he had to open up the building on July 18th to let the guy in. And also there's a bill for cleaning it because it had been occupied by the British during the occupation. And so they have to, this is how they know what was in it because they inventoried all the furniture they had to clean and other things. But imagine that you're, a, you know, you work for the state. You have to go open up the building so that they can read the declaration. You know, you do want to be compensated for your time. If you can see this, this play, Blood on the Snow. Yes. It's pretty spectacular. It is, yes. So that'll the be costumes... Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, they sure look real, Yeah, and the acting is excellent. It's superb, and you're sitting right there. You're surrounding these people who are making these decisions. It had, probably, it had to be just like that, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah it did. Oh, yeah. Do you think they spoke with different terminology? 
back then? How, how different was the English language? It was a bit different. I'm always, I'm always surprised that my students have trouble understanding it when you're reading it. But they did have a more, to us it seems a more formal way of speaking. The language does evolve. And yeah, people did speak a bit more formally, and it does take some doing. It's like, you know, Shakespeare, and this is a bit simpler than Shakespeare, less simple than the way we speak. Okay. Well, thanks for that aside. Now, going back to Massachusetts Innovators, who do you like next? Let's see. How about let's, uh, Francis Cabot Lowell? He's Francis a very important Cabot industrial Lowell. guy. Francis Cabot Lowell is an interesting guy. He actually, in 1811, he goes to England to improve his health. I don't think it works. Uh, I don't know why. I think that's something that raises suspicions yeah, in my I, mind. But as I mentioned, it, it seems like and while, London while he's would there, be where you leave yeah, for your health, I not, not yeah. go to. Yeah. So, and while he is there as a way of improving his health, he does tour a lot of British factories in Manchester or Birmingham. You know, England is the leading textile manufacturer in the world. And they keep a tight lid on who gets access to their industrial technology, how you make these looms, uh, these power looms. You know, a hand loom, relatively easy, a power loom, quite complicated to make, so it doesn't jam and so on. And Lowell has a good mind for how things work. And so he studies this British textile industry, and he comes back to America actually during the War of 1812. And, and he gets together with a group of guys. They call themselves the Boston Associates, and they are guys who have capital to invest in this. And they build a factory in Waltham uh, using the water power of the Charles River and the innovation here is that in this one building in Waltham, raw wool from sheep, and we have plenty of sheep here in New England, is brought in to this factory, taking you know, lifted up to the top floor, and there it is put through a carding process to straighten the fibers, then it's dropped down to the next level where it is spun into yarn, and then the yarn's dropped down to the next level where it's woven into finished cloth, and then the finished cloth comes out the bottom. This is a remarkable innovation. And they realize the Charles River doesn't generate enough power to do as much as they want, so they look north to the Merrimack River. And the Merrimack River has one of the steepest drops of any river in North America. And for years, people have been thinking, what good is this river? Because it's too fast to navigate and too fast to have the fish hanging around, So, and it's a lot very rocky. Well, it has this steep drop. So they buy land in what then was the town of Chelmsford, and they create a factory city. And by this time, Francis Cabot Lowell, his health had not approved. He dies in, I think, 1817. And they create the city of Lowell, which is an industrial city, the largest industrial city in North America. And using this technology, these power looms, which are driven by the water power of the Merrimack River, which makes Massachusetts into the leading manufacturing state in the country, and in fact, by the 1840s, the Merrimack is the most industrial place in the Western Hemisphere because of Francis Cabot Lowell's ability to take this technology he had seen in England and develop it here. So that's really a terrific, and it's really what makes Massachusetts a power. And I think what is the reason Massachusetts becomes such an important, innovative place is because we have this industrial hub here, which is always looking for a way to improve. Weren't there woolen mills dotted around? Was that a result of, of of the original being so successful? I remember in Rochester, New Hampshire, or Dover, New Hampshire, where oh, yeah. I grew up, there would be woolen mills. And oh, my, yeah. my mother would 
We went there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was... That, that's exactly because the entire Merrimack River becomes uh, an area for manufacturing. And just about every river in New England then is going to have mills everywhere you go. New Bedford has mills and just about every town. Even on Cape Cod, there were mills because this is this huge industry. And now these mills have been repurposed into things like university buildings yeah, some in of them Manchester have, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. condos. Right. Next up, we'll go with Eli Whitney. I Eli not, Whitney. I, Eli Whitney we mainly think about with either Georgia, where he invented the cotton gin, or with Connecticut, where he built his factory. But he was actually born, I think, in the town of Westboro in Massachusetts. And then he uh, moves around. He goes down to Connecticut after the revolution, he's down in Georgia in the early 1790s, staying at the home of Catherine Green, Nathaniel Green's widow. He had gone down to Georgia to study law, and that fell through. The person who was going to teach him the law decided not to, and so he's staying with Mrs. Green and tutoring her children. And the state of Georgia has a competition to invent a machine to clean cotton because they realized cotton would be a huge crop in Georgia, had good soil for cotton, and the problem with it is labor-intensive. To clean a, a bowl, you know, cotton grows in these little bowls, B-O-L-E-S, and it's a tangle of fibers. And in order to make it into something that can be spun into yarn, you need to pick the seeds out and then straighten the fibers. And so it would take hours of work to do this, and so Georgia wanted a faster way to do it. They have a contest, a competition, and Whitney develops a machine called a cotton engine or a cotton gin. And oh. it's a box with a, a um, cylinder inside. And the cylinder has spikes coming out. It's like a series of combs on a cylinder. And you put the cotton into the box and you turn a crank and this cylinder turns and that the spikes take out the seeds but also straighten the fibers. So it would have taken 100 people to do a day to do. Now it takes one person a day to do. And that's something of an irony because, because you make cotton faster to clean, it also is going to take more labor to produce. As we realize now we can produce this in a large way. And so in the first decades of the 19th century, cotton takes off as a crop with the displacement of the Cherokee and the Creek in Georgia and Alabama, and then the introduction or the expansion of American slavery. So slavery takes off because of the cotton gin. By 1820, the United States is the world's leading producer of cotton. Previously, India and Egypt had produced most of the world's cotton. Now America does. Henry Adams said that after the War of 1812, Americans thought more about the price of cotton and less about the rights of man. Unfortunately, he didn't make a lot of money on that. Well, unfortunately, he didn't. A lot of other people didn't either. A lot of people did, and a lot of people didn't. I mean, it leads to the expansion of slavery. The other thing he does is to develop um, mass production or interchangeable parts is really the innovation with guns. You know, guns would be manufactured, you know, one at a time, uh, muskets and rifles, and he develops a system for mass producing the parts and having interchangeable parts. So if you or I, you and I are on the battlefield and my gun breaks down or I get shot you, and your gun had broken, you couldn't just take the part from your gun, put it into mine. You had to go get a whole new thing, whole new gun. So this way you can have interchangeable parts. You know, you think about it, uh, we've been talking about really helpful innovations and now we're talking about the cotton gin, which leads to the expansion of slavery and the development of, Ameri of 
uh, cotton production in the United States and then the development of interchangeable parts for weapons. And that's, it's that system that's going to underlay Henry Ford's development of the assembly line in the 20th century, uh, having a system of producing things. So, you know, you are doing one thing, the next guy is doing one thing, and the whole thing leads to the, the whole process leads to the production of something. So all the time, during the time of the revolution, cotton was not a thing. It was a thing, a somewhat long staple cotton grown on the sea islands of Georgia and South Carolina, but again, a kind of a specialized crop. You know, this is why England becomes the world's leading producer of textiles because England had access to cotton from India and from Egypt. And then huge populations there who could, you could pay them very little to um, produce this uh, cotton cloth, cotton uh, To get yarn. the seeds out. Get the seeds out. Yeah, that's what takes a long time. England also produces a lot of woolen textiles. And so this is going to lead to the United States becoming a international power through cotton. In fact, in the 19th century, people in um, East Africa and in other parts of the Indian Ocean preferred American cotton because they said American cotton didn't, hey, the English cotton, first it had to go from India to England, and then there it had to be manufactured, then it had to go back, and they said, well, it got too compressed in transit. American cotton was all produced here. And of course, cotton also Getting back to our friend uh, Francis Cabot Lowell, the mills in um, Lowell really start off producing wool, but by the 1820s, 1830s, they're also producing cotton. That is cotton coming up from the American South to be turned into textiles in Lawrence and Haverhill, these other cities that develop along the Merrimack River producing cotton which is why there, there's really a connection between Massachusetts and the um, cotton states. Before that, what, was, what were the American crops? The big American exports, well, the first one was tobacco, which is being produced in Virginia, and rice being produced in South Carolina, and also grain, which could be produced here, wheat in Pennsylvania, mainly to be shipped to the West Indies. And here in New England, the one real export we had were fish. Uh, codfish. And one of the reasons there's so much innovation in Massachusetts is we don't have a whole lot else going on. We need to think of other things to do. And so um, making better processes for manufacturing things becomes our thing. You know, Paul Revere developed the first copper rolling mill in the country in Canton to roll the copper that lined the hull of the USS Constitution and the Massachusetts State House. Before that, if you wanted rolled copper, sheets of copper, you had to get them from England. So he sees a need here for something that he can build here. And Revere is another of these great innovators. We mainly think of him with the Midnight Ride, but he is one of the real, the first real industrial innovators in the United States. So yeah, after he, he got a little older, he moved out to Canton, right? He did move out to Canton. In fact, right now they're restoring his um, his mill and his factory in Canton. He built a mill pond there to power it. You know, you need a source of power. And so a mill pond, you can then control the flow of water and turn the wheel. So Revere is a great, and Revere's son is also a great innovator. His son, by the way, his name is Joseph Warren Revere, named for the hero of Bunker Hill. And how about Ellen, you know, a short one before the break, Ellen Swallow Richards. Yeah, Ellen Swallow Richards, interesting woman. She is from Massachusetts, and she goes to MIT at a time when women really didn't go to MIT. And she develops a way of testing the purity of water. Uh, cholera is a huge problem. You know, we, 
we in Massachusetts don't have to think about the quality of our water. We've seen the problem in a place like Flint where the quality of water is a huge issue. And you also think about here, we have water that we're using for industrial purposes, but we're also drinking it. Well, how do you know what's in the water? And Ellen Swallow Richards really develops ways of testing the quality of water. And then you can think about, well, how can you purify water? And she works on purifying the water of the Merrimack River. As I said, the most industrial place in the hemisphere, but it's also where the people in Lawrence and Lowell are getting their, were getting their drinking water. So how do you clean it? I mean, the first step is figuring out what's in it. And so Ellen Swallow Richards, she does teach at MIT as well. I don't think she's given, she's not given a professorship, but she does teach there, essentially teaching a form of home economics. But you see the importance of what she's doing with um, cleaning the drinking water. Okay, then we'll take a break and go to the field of medicine and Massachusetts innovators on Boston's News Radio BZ. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J. on BZ Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. Indeed, it's 1247. We're with uh, Bob Ellison of Suffolk University, the history department, and we're talking about mass innovators, and now we head to the uh, the area of medicine, and we go to Mass General, I guess, and a couple things that may be related. Paul S. Russell and a team of 12 doctors that reattached an arm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this is one of the great stories. By the way, the Paul Russell Museum at MGH is well worth visiting. They have done a tremendous job with the history of innovation there. And this is not the first hospital in the country, but I think the second, and started by Dr. John Collins Warren, who is a nephew of of Dr. Joseph Warren and another doctor around 1818. And you see this innovative place, and then you also can go up to the Ether Dome. And I recommend visiting on a Tuesday or Thursday. There's a wonderful doctor, John Truman, who had come to Boston in the 1950s to study, um, actually to get a PhD in history at Harvard. But he was also getting a medical degree in Toronto, and he was kind of commuting between these places. And then he decided just to go into medicine, which is unfortunate for the world of history, probably fortunate for the many people whose lives he changed over his many years. And now as a retired doctor, he does tours. And there's a photo in there of a boy named Everett Knowles, who was... In 1962, Everett Knowles, who then was known as Red, was um, climbing onto a freight train, and he was thrown off the train, and his arm was taken completely off. And so the, the Mass General gets a call. It's a Saturday night, and the residents are there. That is, these are guys who are training to be doctors, and they're in charge of the ER. And a Dr. Ron Malt is the head resident at the emergency room, and he tells the police to put the arm on ice and bring it along too. And the police happened to be having a party that night, so they had an ice chest 
filled with beer. They took the beer out, put the arm in, and they bring young Red Knowles to the hospital. It was somewhere around North Station or in Charlestown that this accident happened. Uh, and so he is brought in, his arm is brought in, and uh, Dr. Malt gives the arm to um, jo- Dr. Truman, and Dr. Truman says, do you want me to send this to the morgue to be tested? And they said, no, we're going to reattach it. And he books the operating room for the next 24 hours, and then he schedules the um, bone people, the blood, the neurology people, the blood people, everyone he needs over the course of 24 hours so they can then reattach the arm, which they do. And it's the first successful limb reattachment in history. And you start with something like an arm, uh, which you can see, and now they go even smaller things, uh, fingertips, other things that can be reattached. It's an amazing thing that they're able to do. And he said that uh, when, uh, when Dr. Malt explained to Dr. Truman he was going to reattach the arm, he said, will you back me up? Thinking lots of things could go wrong with this. And Truman realized this was a really an opportunity to try something new and something extraordinarily innovative. Do you happen to know what kind of result they got? They got it. He, 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 uh, Red Knowles actually just passed away two years ago. He was, still lived in the area uh, and you know had a long life. His arm completely was Did you ever meet function. him? Excuse me? I never met him, no. So uh, I wanted to get a report on his arm. So, of course, if you do that, you have to somehow reattach the bone. Yes. And now the nerves. Yes. And the blood vessels. Yes. Which is... Yeah, beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my comprehension too. I never. Uh, I, I, one of the many reasons I didn't go to medical schools. And the muscles. Paid, yeah, the muscles. Yeah, and then will it work? And will infection set in? You have all of these things that could conceivably go wrong, and they're doing this. They also did other transplants at Mass General. A lot of uh, one of the re- we have a lot of medical facilities in Boston that are all many of them associated with universities. So you do have people who are trying to create things and trying to do new things. So uh, the New England Journal of Medicine was really launched here and still is going to publish innovations in the world of medicine and new ideas in the world of medicine. You know, over, uh, here's another one. Doc, Oliver Wendell Holmes the po- is a poet in Boston, but he's also a doctor. And in the 1850s, he wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine because here is a problem that doctors had. This is at a time when doctors are taking over childbirth. And doctors noticed, okay, if you do you uh, deliver baby A, say, at 9 in the morning, and then you get called to another woman who's having a baby, so you go to her house and you deliver baby B, um, Mrs. B's chances of survival are about half of Mrs. A's. And then later in the day, you go to Mrs. C, who's delivering a baby. Her chances of survival are about a quarter of Mrs. A's. So why is this? How come babies born later in the day, the mothers have less of a chance of survival? And the thing that was killing these women giving birth was something called purpural fever, a fever that developed after giving birth. Well, how come earlier in the day, women aren't getting purpural fever as much as women later in the day? And again, Holmes, thinking about this problem and looking at all of the variables in it, he came up with an extraordinary idea about why women who delivered later in the day were more susceptible to purple fever than women deli- who delivered earlier in the day. Do you have any idea what that was? My only guess would be that 
the doctor's carrying the germs on his hands from That's the, exactly. the previous women. Doctors weren't washing their hands. So Holmes advises washing hands. And the doc, a lot of doctors think this is crazy. What's he, he doesn't know anything. You can't really carry germs on your hands because they're exposed to air. But Holmes does show that, well, this is, these are the, the factors going into this. So if you wash your hands, and doctors resisted washing their hands for a long time. Actually, it's the Civil War that happens about five years later when doctors have a lot of experience with treating people, with actually sewing off limbs or treating people for gunshot wounds and so on, and realize that there is a correlation between washing your hands. So they didn't understand germs? Germs, ger- yeah, well, the whole germ the theory, again, it was called the germ theory, um, com- is coming about at this time. But it really is from this observation of Dr. Holmes. Probably the most important thing he wrote was this article on purpural fever and why doctors should wash their hands. If you do go to Mass General, you should also go to the Ether Dome, where they have a wonderful mural of the first operation using ether. And there, the doctors are dressed like they're going to uh, deliver lectures. I mean, Dr. Um, Warren and uh, Dr. Morton are both wearing suits. And here they're operating on this guy, in actually operating in the Ether Dome. And you can sit there. You can go on a tour of the Ether Dome, which is... Um, still used for train. It's not used for training, but it is used for lectures and other things for the doctors doing rounds at Mass General. And it was held high. It's high up in the Bullfinch Building, in the first building designed by Charles Bullfinch. Up there, both because they could get light. There's a dome that they could open up for light, but also it's far enough away from the other patients that they won't hear the agonizing screams of people undergoing surgery. And so here it is, and surgery would be something as a last resort, and most people undergoing surgery are going to die of shock, the shock of being cut open. And so this is why people would be lubricated with whiskey or bite on bullets or do other things to try to counter this excruciating pain. And in the uh, 1830s, 1840s, there's a doctor, uh, actually a dentist in Georgia named Crawford Long, who discovers this substance. It's a, um, a gas that you can create, and I'm not going to tell you how. It, we know it is ether, and it can make you insensitive to pain. So he was using this, and then a couple of, doc- of dentists who trained in Connecticut were experimenting with the same thing. And these guys, Horace Wells and uh, Dr. Morton, were kind of competitors with each other, and they were using this. And Wells was going to do a demonstration of ether in Boston. So he invites all these doctors to come see this marvelous substance that you can administer to someone, and then they won't feel pain. So he's going to pull a guy's tooth. And so he has this stage set to demonstrate ether, and he's preparing to pull the guy's tooth, and suddenly the guy starts screaming. And someone in the audience says, this is a humbug which was the 18th, 19th century word. You really said that. Humbug. This is a humbug. Yeah, It's a humbug. Humbug, yeah. And yeah. that pretty much ends poor Morton, who sent off in disgrace. Uh, I'm sorry, poor Horace Wells, sent off in disgrace. Now, his great competitor, uh, Morton, or arranges to have a demonstration of ether, which he actually called something else. He had come up with a different name for it at Mass General. And Dr. Warren oversees this surgery. A guy had a tumor on his neck. And they, they administered the ether, and then everyone's watching as Dr. Warren then excises the guy's tumor. And the guy doesn't show any uh, sensation. And when they're done, they ask if he felt anything. He said, well, I did feel a little scratching on my neck. 
of course, everyone had watched as his neck had been cut open yeah. and this tumor had been taken off. And Dr. Warren said, this is no humbug. Ah, oh, there and you go. That's the development of ether. And it's a great innovation. This is in 1846. And later in the 19th century on Boston's public garden, the Mass General put up a monument to ether. And it very carefully doesn't mention the names of Dr. Wells, Dr. Morton, uh, this doctor in Georgia. And Oliver Wendell Holmes said it's a monument to ether or ether. Huh. Why didn't you want to tell how to make it? Because someone might make it? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He, he wanted to think this die. is my secret thing. Yeah. Uh, it's my innovation, and you have to get it from me. That he's trying to want to control it. What's the name of the museums again? The Paul the, the Russell Museum. At, Paul yeah. Russell Museum. It's on Cambridge Street um, by Mass General in downtown Boston. All right. Well, any idea what we'll talk about next time? We'll, we'll think, think. We'll think of something. Think, good. think yeah. something. That's great. Thank you very much. That hour flew by. Professor Robert Allison, Department of History. Suffolk University, USS Constitution Museum Board of Trustees. They've got to get over there. And Rev 250, group that celebrates events leading up to the revolution, sets up reenactments and stuff. You'll keep us uh, informed of that, okay? Yes, thank you. Beautiful. Thanks, Bradley. You're very welcome. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.